let's stand and read Psalm 96 together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Everybody within the sound of these instruments and our voices would say, yes, Lord, your love makes my heart want to give you praise, want to give you glory, want to dedicate my life, the rest of my life, to living all my days for the glory of God. And we just pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated and take one of these blue connection cards, all right? And if uh, if you're a first or maybe second time guest, we don't haven't heard about who you are yet, we would love to know who you are so we can uh, minister to you, answer any questions you have about the church. And so please fill this out and, and turn that in, um, either in the offering plate or you can take it to the Connection Center. Actually, uh, just a little FYI, uh, every Sunday morning, 
after service, there will be somebody, a pastor or somebody on staff or a Connection Team member to help answer your questions. So if you have any questions, please stop by the Connection Center after, after the service, okay? And then the prayer request card obviously is for everybody, and we will be faithful to, to pray for those. There's a little point on there. If you want to keep it confidential, it'll be staff only. If you want to make it church-wide, we'll put it on the church-wide prayer list, so mark those accordingly, and we will pray for those, all right? Well, let's continue to on with uh, sort of our theme song for this uh, spiritual warfare, this uh, armor of the Lord um, uh, uh, session that we're in. The battle belongs to the Lord.
because it's his battle. It's well with us. Amen. Sing together. When
you continue to guide us in this time of worship as we give back to you what you so richly deserve, what's yours and yours alone in the first place, and you blessed us with and put us stewards of. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful at this moment of, 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 uh, of worship. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh 
How can we have such surety, such certainties? How can we rest in Jesus? Because His faithfulness is not just good. It's great. It is perfect. Amen? Great is our God's faithfulness.
I figured out something. It should never be called spring break in Missouri. It should be called winter break. I know you teachers look forward to it and students, but if I was doing the calendar, I would move it closer to Easter, right? When Easter is late, right? Because uh, I've been here six and a half years, I think, or a little more. August will be seven years, and it's been cold every single spring break. But I hope you've enjoyed your break and did some exciting things. Natalie traveled out of town with Betty Sue, and they went to see Matt's grandbabies. And on Monday, I came of going into the gym and lifted some weights and came down to the floor getting ready to go, and some boys had come over to play some basketball. And so I haven't played in probably four years. I think Brandon Cliff, we played a little three-on-three tournament maybe four or five years ago, and I hadn't played since. And I am over 50, you understand. But one of them said, come on, old man. I'm like, ugh. But I looked down and I thought, my shoes, I just lifted. And if you know anything about that, it's hard to shoot a basketball after that. And I looked down at my shoes and I'm like, oh, I'm not prepared. But anyway, I got out there. I was not the only one that wasn't prepared. Drew Hayward would go to guard someone and slide all the way. <laughs> was it turf shoes? Yeah, he had turf shoes on playing basketball. And it, it was... I. It was amazing that he could move and run like he did with turf shoes because he slid everywhere. But it's so related to the sermon. And maybe it was I needed to think about this on Monday, Monday afternoon and get my mind in the rhythm. I'd already started studying. And then I thought, Lord, you're telling us to put on gospel footwear. I did, by the way, we won. Right, Drew? You have to say that. We did win the game. Okay. What now? Lucky shot. Oh, you were the one I shot it over. There we go. <laughs> so on June 4th, 1945, under the Secretary of War, the Under Secretary of War, Robert Patterson, issued the following statement. Shoes and the Army statement. Warfare is rough on shoes. Army shoes must stand up under hard marching Mud, snow, and the severity of weather. Warfare requires a lot of shoes, and it requires stout shoes. Well, if you're familiar with Ephesians 6, which I hope you are if you've been coming, we know that if we're going to stand in this evil day against the schemes of the devil, against the principalities and powers and authorities, We need stout shoes. We need stout shoes. As a matter of fact, in normal battle, even centuries before our own Secretary of War, Robert Patterson, made that statement, centuries before, the Romans knew that footwear was important. As a matter of fact, they had something called the Caligae, and it was a sandal-slash-boot And just to think about it for a moment, the leather on that boot was treated with neat's foot oil in a repeated process in order to make it soft and pliable but yet maintain the strength. And it was fashioned so that it wouldn't cause blisters on the feet. The three-quarter inch to an inch heel was a thick sole on the boot 
And it held, was held together by what's called hobnails. Any of y'all know what that means? You older people do. I remember Larry Munson saying one time, he crushed him with the hobnail boot as Georgia, as Herschel Walker ran into the end zone. That's in my mind, right? Hobnail boot. Well, the hobnails not only function to secure the sole to the bottom of the shoe, but it also was, they were bent over and it gave you a cleat on the bottom for firm footing. And then from the soles, you had leather straps that proceeded out of it that came up and wrapped around your ankle and your calf muscle to give you uh, stability in combat. Remember, nothing gets closer than, and more personal than wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. And that's what the scripture says about our enemy. It says that we are wrestling with the enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against our enemy or principalities. So it's up close combat. The Romans, of course, always also used this particular boot, like Romans would, to stomp their enemies. And you can imagine how that felt with cleats hitting you. So I'm laboring this to help you understand that if you've played any kind of sports or if you've hiked or boxed or you've been in the military, footwear is vitally important, right? It provides protection, keeps you from twisting ankles, it keeps you from debilitating blisters. But I think in this text, and we're going to flesh this out more than any other issue, it gives you the stability that you need for hand-to-hand combat with the enemy and all of his minions. We have to have this. Last week, A couple of weeks ago, we spent time talking about the breastplate of righteousness, how crucial it is to protect us. And if you think back, uh, it was the belt of truth that protected uh, the core of our strength. And then it was the breastplate of righteousness that protects the center of our being. Without the righteousness of Christ, you are of no use against the enemy. There's no way you can stand in your own righteousness. It's only in the righteousness of Jesus. And if I were ordering this armor, because I live in modern day, and so do you, what would be the next piece? If you went from the belt of truth to the breastplate of righteousness, I would have probably gone to the helmet. But that's not what Paul does. And the order of the armor is important. But he goes to another critical piece. He goes down to the sure footing and foundation that we need. And so... In this particular text, although we're going to only look at verse 15, it's important for us to get the right interpretation. Do y'all think biblical interpretation is important? There's not many times in the day that I'm not thinking about it. Making sure that I give to you what the Bible says, not what I want it to say, not what I think it means, but what it actually says in authorial intent. So... Are there some interpretive options? Now, there's a difference in interpretation and application, okay? But we're dealing with interpretation here. So I'm encouraging you today. I know it's been spring break, but it's going to be required of you today to think, right? Good preaching should aim at the heart, but it should never bypass the mind. So I'm asking you to think through this, engage your brain, and let's look at this text. Let's get a running start. Finally... 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. There's our verb that's driving this text. Against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Here's the categorization. Against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, there it is again, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, there it is again, having fastened on the belt of truth. And this is why I've used terminology, stand firm by employing the full armor of God. In other words, what does it mean to stand firm? It means that you're employing the armor of God. What does it mean to be strong? It means that you are employing the armor of God. So having put on the breastplate, first fasten the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and here it is, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So today's sermon, by putting on the gospel of peace footwear, you need to have on the right kind of shoes. Now the NAS says having shod your feet. Do y'all use that kind of terminology in your day? The NAS, New American Standard, having your feet shod. I have a copy of the Legacy Study Bible, which is outstanding, if you want to grab a copy of that one. It is a wooden literal. It is a great translation. It's newer. It says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. The ESV, which I am reading out of for you, says... And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Phrasing a little bit different. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, even if you go to the two other places in the New Testament where that exact phrase, having put on, is used, in both cases it is put on your sandals. So isn't it pretty clear that the word simply means to tie, to bind, to put on... And I think in any situation in the ancient world, you had to bind it, tie it on, or put it on. And it's in the middle voice. And grammar is important. And again, it it reflects this particular meaning. This is something that you have to do. Your, your, Your husband or your wife can't do this for you, right? When you're thinking about putting on shoes, I mean, there are times, I guess, that people can help you put them on, tie them on. But in this middle voice... It's it's our responsibility as the people of God who have already been equipped in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are in Christ Jesus to then put this on. Put on the shoes. The word translated readiness is critical in understanding this passage of scripture. I told you you had to think, right? What does it mean to put on, having put on, the gospel of peace or the readiness of the gospel of peace? Of peace. Most English translations say a preparation or a readiness of the gospel. The NAS again says, having shod yourself with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And this text says, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
So if that's the case, what does it mean? It would mean eagerness. It would, be, it would mean being prepared. It would be to advance, to be ready to go and proclaim and share the gospel. Y'all see that? That would be the translation if it's readiness. The Greek word itself, however, found in the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew and Aramaic in some places. So scholars back in the day had to take the Hebrew language and translate it into Greek so the common people could read the Bible and understand it. That translation is called the Septuagint. You'll see it in Roman numerals L and XX. That's the Septuagint. Okay, if you trace this particular word translated out of Hebrew into Greek, the, the normal translation, dominant translation, is not readiness but foundation or firm footing. Okay? So if that is the case, then this actually means something different than readiness or preparation. If you consider that, it has more to do with firmness and foundation. And that actually ends up being way more consistent with the context, right? Have y'all been following with that? In Ephesians 6, then, then the word readiness. Why is that? Because three different times it tells us to stand firm. And who are you fighting against? The enemy, okay? So if Paul is saying, having put on the foundation of the gospel of peace, that makes more sense in the immediate context. However, I would tell you that when it comes to scholars, they're divided, and good ones, that some believe that the word is preparation for, readiness, being eager, and others say and have great support that it means a foundation, okay? So as we go through the text, I want you to keep that in mind, readiness, but also foundation. Next, Paul says, it is the gospel, you see it in the text, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You guessed it. As people look at this text, there are multiple things that could come out of that particular phrase, of the gospel. It could mean that the gospel itself is the source of our readiness and the source of our foundation. I like that. It prepares us for war. That would mean that the, the writer is using this as a genitive of source. In other words, it is the gospel itself that prepares us for the battle. That would be the understanding of that one. Okay, It equips us. The second possible meaning is that the gospel gives us a firmness in foundation for the war that we are in. How many of you think that's it? You're not going to guess. You've, you've learned that, right? It makes sense as well. It's not just that the gospel makes us ready for war. It's that the gospel is what keeps us firm. It's what keeps us steady. It, it, it is what keeps us able to stand. The third, it could mean that we are ready with the gospel. You see the difference? We're ready to present it. We're ready to share it. We're ready to promote it. And I would dare say that for most of you, when you've engaged this text, that's probably what you think it means. Probably what you've been taught, probably what you think it means, is the one you'd probably be most familiar with. Now, again, thinking about sports or thinking about military battles, here's what this basically means for us. Let's cut it down. Do you see this 
as an offensive thing or a defensive thing. Just by, just by way of looking at this, this would have to be the thing, right? It comes down to what's the footwear arranged for. Is it used for offensive measures to go forward or defensive purposes? Either it is the defensive footwear to help us in our posture and standing against the enemy, or it's designed to prepare us to advance. Now, do we have any help anywhere in the Bible with this text? I'm glad you asked. We do, right? Flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52. And let's get a little help. It's the Old Testament background to what the Apostle Paul says here. And in Romans chapter 10. In both places, Paul is going to quote from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 7. We know this is the background that Paul is envisioning and thinking about. He's drenched and saturated in the Old Testament. And the parallels are obvious. Chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. See that in Paul? In Romans? I mean, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 6, 15. Who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Don't you love those terms? Good news, happiness, peace, salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. What a beautiful text of scripture. This is no doubt where Paul is drawing from. The parallels are obvious. There are feet in both passages. We have the gospel in both passages. We have peace, the gospel, heralding the message. So as Paul is writing about the armor, as was, his, as was the case all the way through it, he begins to take that piece of armor and show you where it comes, comes from the Old Testament. Now again, in Isaiah 52, I believe there are certainly messianic overtones, but it doesn't say in that text that the Savior is the one heralding it. However, uh, Ephesians 2 will tell us that Christ, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he is the one who speaks peace. So, as you consider this message of Isaiah 7, it is someone bringing a message. They're bringing good news. They're announcing peace. News of happiness. We begin to think and consider Isaiah 52.7 in context with Ephesians 6.15. And we began to think this feet, the feet that need to be shod, certainly is a readiness. It is a willingness. It's an eagerness to go and to proclaim the good news. So maybe the gospel footwear of peace, the gospel of peace is to ready and go advance the gospel. This could be your conclusion, and I don't think it would be a bad conclusion. It is not my conclusion, okay, but I don't want to go against every good scholar in the world. However, I think it would be a good conclusion. Now, would you look in Romans? Don't take your fingers completely out of Isaiah. All right? We will, prop, we will go back. All right, Romans 10. Let's look at another text of Scripture that brings this up. Y'all thinking? I know it's been spring break. Turn your mind back on. Stay with me. Listen. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. 
How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not ever heard? They have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? As Paul uses it here, no doubt in the context of Romans 10, it is a readiness, it is gospel advance, it is the herald of the news. And so we might conclude that the foot warfare, uh, the foot warfare, footwear is actually offensive. It is to go on the offense. It's on the march. It's going forward. It's advancing. But before we reach that conclusion, again... Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand. Okay? And then in verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Verse 14. Stand therefore having. And when you look at the verb stand, all the participles and every one of them are, having put on, having put on, having put on. Stand firm is actually what's driving the participles. So, when I look at that, I'm thinking, well, that presents a problem to it being gospel advance. The translation of readiness and advance, puts the, we put on the gospel boots, we march forward to pronounce peace. However, if you look at the context of chapter 6, 10 through 14, track the verb usage. It's connected to shotting your feet, and that appears to be the most viable option. All right, what is the context or meaning of to strap it on or to put it on? And some of you are thinking, I'm glad you got past the technical. Show us what it actually means. Well, let's go back to Isaiah and unpack this. Did you keep your finger there? Did you notice that here you've got the coming of God's messenger, you've got the content of the message, and then you have a declaration of the sovereignty of God. But Isaiah says something here that is odd. How beautiful are the feet. How many of you believe that? That your feet are beautiful? You women do a lot of things to make them beautiful. But let's just think about that. That's an odd statement. How beautiful are the feet? Do you know that I could wear size 10 shoes if the toe next to my big toe was not so long? And Logan, yeah, Mike says this is TMI. Logan said one time to, to Natalie, to Grandma, Grandma, Papa's feet look wooden. He's got wooden toes. I mean, you know, that kind of hurt my feelings. But the fact, fact is, you have to do a lot, really, to make feet beautiful. It seems like a long reach. But that's not true if you're in the remotest part of the world. And the herald of the gospel is coming. And God, in his sovereignty, has placed the messenger right there with hearts warm to hear the scripture. Here's what John Piper says. Preachers of the gospel, bringers of good news, 
are so precious that we see even their soiled and bloody feet as beautiful. Beautiful feet are not soft, manicured, painted, well-panned feet. Beautiful feet are like the dirty, worn, leathery, scarred feet of many miles of trekking into remote places with good news that could not be heard any other way. Could we imagine being way up in the mountains in a region hung with hungry hearts for the gospel and then someone treks up that mountain to bring us the gospel of peace, the good news of salvation? Would we not say those feet are beautiful? You have brought us the gospel of eternal life. Then Isaiah says to us, it is a message of peace, isn't it? It's a message of peace. What you have in both contexts of Ephesians 6.15 and Isaiah is this is a message of peace. And here's the other thing you know. It's a message of peace in a grueling wartime event. That's what's happening in Isaiah 6. I mean Isaiah 52. It's wartime. And then when you get in Ephesians 6, is this war? You better believe it. So in the midst of that, God offers us shalom. Peace. That is a wholeness, right? That's the Old Testament understanding. It's wholeness and restoration. Hear this, with God and others. It is a wholeness, shalom. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You just stay where you are and listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's Christ who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace. Aren't you thankful for that? Peace. The peace of God in Jesus Christ brings the immediate counterpart to hostility. And when you go into war, there's no chance if you have hostility against the captain of the army. The captain of our army is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have peace with him, not only are you going to be in the warfare, you can't, you can't make it in this battle if you're in hostility with the Lord God. But thank God in this battle we have peace with the one that counts the most. Right? The hostility is broken down. And then Isaiah says news of happiness. It's good news that brings lasting happiness. Isn't it an incredible privilege to announce good news? That people can be right with God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? When you are a messenger of the gospel of peace. When you're a messenger of the fact that you can be made right with God through Christ then you are proclaiming a message that is the only source of lasting happiness in this life and the life to come. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it brings peace. What an incredible privilege we all have to be able to declare to people far and wide that God has made peace with himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is awesome. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're not firmly rooted in him as your Lord and Savior... All the happiness that you think you have in this world is nothing but transient. It's nothing but illusionary. It's nothing but fleeting happiness. It's like a vapor. If you are not in Christ Jesus, your happiness is not true happiness. True happiness is found in the maker and giver of life. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have a gospel. 
of peace, of happiness. That's not only for here in this world, but in the hereafter. Happiness that comes from the Lord. Who announces what? Isaiah says, salvation is to be rescued from the power of sin. That's what salvation is. The gospel of peace is the message of salvation. The Bible is clear that our condition before grace was dead in trespasses and sins. We've sinned against a holy God and own, and actually, and one of these days, either your sins will be taken upon Christ, or he did bear your sins in his body on the tree, or you will pay for them yourselves. That is what the Bible teaches us, and we'll pay for them forever. So when I tell you this, I'm not giving you a, just simply a conjecture. I'm giving you a specific command from the Bible. Based on the fact that we were dead in sin and hostile and enemies against God, we must be saved. We must be saved. That may sound forthright, but that's how the Bible says it. We must be saved. In our modern day, post-enlightened day, it may sound hillbilly or just using a religious cliche to say, I've been saved. But folks, I'm telling you, there's nothing greater to be able to say than I've been saved. You young people who trek, go off to your schools, I mean, I'm not trying to condemn you or anybody else, but how often do we tell our brothers and our, our friends at school, I've been saved? You say, whoa, I'm never going to say that. They're going to think that I'm a hillbilly from Alabama. I, that's not vernacular that we need to use at school. Oh, yes, it is. I've been saved. And you must be saved. There's nothing more important than to be able with a good conscience before God to say, Father, I am in the right before you. Because of your Son, I've been saved unto eternal life. That is what is proclaimed in the gospel of peace. Check this out. Are you ready? Then Isaiah says, he publishes or, Zion, or says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, what does your God reigns have to do with salvation? Anything? What does your God reigns have to do with the gospel? This almost seems out of place. Good news, message of peace, happiness, publish in Zion. Your God reigns. Some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with the gospel? What is Isaiah announcing? Nothing short than the unrivaled sovereignty of God. Even over the gospel of peace that reaches the heart of sinners. Sovereignty of God. We would think, well, how is the sovereignty of God a part of the gospel that we preach it's controversial in our day to say that our God reigns. <laughs> I love it. I love to think about it. I love to say it. I love to see it in the scripture because our God reigns. I grew up as a child in, in church singing, How lovely are the feet. Is that the way it goes? I might have messed it up. Bring a new, our God reigns. Y'all remember that? Our God reigns. And we'd sing it to the glory of the Lord. Now, we don't believe, I don't believe that he 
can reign. I believe that he does reign. Okay? I'm not interested in hypothetical sovereignty. I'm not interested in what God could do if he wanted to. And people say, I believe God is sovereign whenever he wants to be. Let me just tell you. I believe that God is sovereign over every nanosecond of life. He exerts the fullness of his sovereignty over all. His sovereignty is extensive, exhaustive, and comprehensive, and it's unrivaled. How does our God reign become a part of the gospel? Folks, the Bible places the sovereignty of God right at the center of the gospel. And it is really the source of our happiness that God reigns. Why? Because without the sovereignty of God, there is no new good news. There is no good news without the sovereignty of God. Period. Is this good news? To you, think about it. God is willing to meet you halfway. Now, I know you've blown it, but he feels sorry for you. And he would never violate your will, so he'll say, I'll meet you halfway. Is that good news? That's not only not good news, that's not the gospel of the Bible. That's not the gospel of the Bible. That is the gospel that leaves you in your sin. Because you can't meet him halfway. You're dead. You're an enemy. You're hostile to God. You're enslaved to sin. You don't have the ability to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and meet God halfway. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't teach anything about meeting God halfway. That's no gospel. That's a gospel that still leaves you in your sin, still leaves you crippled in the inability. It leaves you paralyzed in the death grip of sin. I need a gospel that at its core is a sovereign God who says, you were dead, blind, your heart was rotten, it was cold, you, it was dead as a stone, but here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to send my son to pay the penalty for your sin, and I'm going to secure your salvation, and then right in the midst of the deadness of your own sin and the deadness of your own heart, in your trespasses, and in, with a cold heart, and I'm going to come to you as a sovereign God who breaks into death and brings life, calling things that are, that were not. And that's exactly what Romans 4, 17 says for Abraham. I'm about to call from you things that are not as if they were. Only God can do that. And my encouragement to you today, folks, is this. If you don't have the sovereignty of God at the center of the gospel of your salvation, then you don't have any good real news. You may have something that is a religious idea, but you don't have the power of God unto salvation. Hear this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It is God's power that works in us. I'm not saying that if you've got a weaker view of God's sovereignty, that you don't know the Lord. Please hear me clearly. I'm not saying if you've not studied and thought about the gospel and your salvation, that you're that you're lost. I'm not saying that. But here's what I will tell you. I will say this with full vigor and passion and based upon the word of God. I do believe that if the sovereign grace of God never gets to the center of your understanding of the gospel, you will be limited on how much you're going to grow in that gospel. I believe it because the gospel begins with God. 
God is the author of our salvation. So, the gospel of peace, the gospel of good news, the gospel of happiness is a gospel that says, Your God reigns. You, God can do all things. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can give sight to the blind. Only the Lord can take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. The old hymn writer wrote a hymn called, Thy God Reigneth. Listen to this one. Trembling soul beset by fears, thy God reigneth. Do we need to hear that today? Trembling soul beset by fears, thy God reigneth. Look above and dry thy tears, thy God reigneth. Though the foes with power assail not against thee shall prevail. Trust in him, he'll never fail, thy God reigneth. All right, everybody still with the text? That was kind of a little sidetrack, maybe. When you go to Isaiah 52, 7, it's not specifically mentioned about the Messiah. But does the Messiah have on gospel shoes? Well, listen to Ephesians 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you. There it is. Gospel shoes who were far off. Who was that? Gentiles. And those who were close... Or near, who is that? The, gen- the Jews. So he does have on the gospel shoes. He's preaching peace. And again, we vacillated back and forth between translations here. Uh, or interpretation between advancement and stability. Again, I, lead more, I lean more toward stability. Okay, No doubt the gospel of peace stabilizes us in the war. We use the peace of God to hold our ground. But it is true in many senses that we're always in warfare. We're always being attacked. We're always in a war. But we're also called to preach the gospel. Right? We're called to advance the message of peace. So, I was in California. And we go to Grace to You. And we're able to visit one of John MacArthur's offices. I don't know how many he has. But on this one wall to the right were two sets of books on a shelf. And you could just take one off. And it was yours. So I'm scanning up there and guess what I find? The believer's armor. I'm like, well, I haven't preached on that in a long time. Might as well buy it. Or might as well get it. So I took that book off the shelf, and I was interested in what Dr. MacArthur would say. And here's what he said. Many commentators who have written on this subject assume preparation refers to preaching the gospel of peace. They reach this interpretation based on Romans 10, 15. Have we looked at that? And on Isaiah 52, 7. There's no question that the gospel of peace is something that needs to be preached. That's what Paul is saying clearly in Romans 10.1. But that is not what he is saying in Ephesians 6.15. It has nothing to do with preaching or going anywhere. The the first word in Ephesians 6.14 is stand. So Paul is not talking about going. He's talking about standing. Paul is not talking about evangelizing the lost or preaching the gospel. He's referring to fighting the devil. The the idea is best expressed in 1 Corinthians 16.13. Stand firm in the faith. 
Certainly the gospel of peace is to be preached, and the feet of those who go and preach are beautiful, but that's not the proper interpretation of Ephesians 6.15. The verse refers to the believer in conflict with Satan. Paul is saying that since our feet are shod with the good news of peace, we stand our ground. We don't need to slip. We don't need to slide. We don't need to fall when we're under attack. So let me give you one application. You ready? One application. And it has to do with standing firm. It has to do with stability. It has to do with the gospel. Folks, if you're trying to stand on your own moral fortitude, you're going to fail. You you just simply can't do that. Our own moral failure. What about our own advancement in personal holiness? That's not going to do it either. It has to be in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, hear me folks, y'all listening? The gospel is not ultimately your testimony. I know that may shock some of you. But the gospel is not ultimately your testimony. It is the objective reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When you think it's your testimony, then that's just you giving your own existential experience of what you felt like when you trusted Christ. And you're wanting the other person to follow you praying a prayer to have the same existential experience. Let me just tell you, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. The only thing that saves is the gospel. It is the objective reality of what Christ did for us. And if we're to stand in this warfare, then the gospel needs to be like one of those Roman boots, tied tight, wrapped around your ankles and your calves, that gives you good footing and traction in this war. For this to be the case, listen folks, the gospel must be at the center of your lives. It must be there. It must be the pervasive reality. I mean, how often do you think about the gospel? I mean, think of this. Do you get up in the morning and you, and you go all week, six days, and you come back to church on Sunday and, oh, the pastor talked about the gospel? Is that the last time you think about the gospel in a week? I'm telling you, folks, in order to be in this battle, in order, in order to stand, you have to, it has to be the pervasive reality of everything about your life. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is something that you get down to four simple points and you move on from it. If you do, you're in trouble. You never move from the gospel. Never. You need to think maturity in faith. You need to think about maturity in the faith as not something, oh, I've moved on from the gospel. I'm thinking about loftier things. No, your maturity is actually connected to a growing deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of the gospel. And one of the massive problems with believers today is that they have a gospel That is this little, tiny propositional message, but the Bible does not present the gospel in those means. It's a message of peace. Explain that to me. It is a message of good news and happiness. Explain that. It is a message of salvation. It is a declaration of the sovereignty of God. Can y'all explain? That's just three or four little things about the gospel that is so expansive. If you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ... Don't move one inch away from the gospel. and Instead, saturate your life with the truth of the gospel. The gospel in a nutshell is not good enough in this battle. It's not good enough. We need, to, we need a big picture that includes justification. Did y'all know that's a part of the gospel? We need to know what reconciliation is. If you don't know you have peace with God then whose side are you on? When you're in the battle, do you know you're on God's side? 
Well, if you don't have peace with God, you're not on his side. Or should I say it this way, God is not on your side. Right? What about reconciliation? What about adoption? To know that you've been adopted as sons and daughters. What about redemption? We need an understanding of propitiation. You said, preacher, don't use that big word. The Bible does. Propitiation. Do you know how to explain to people that the wrath of God is against you? And if you die in your sins, you're going to be separated from God forever. But the king, the righteous one, came from heaven, robed himself in human flesh, came to fully God, fully man, that he himself would become sin on your behalf and bear the curse that you deserve so that God Almighty would turn his wrath away from you and put it all on Jesus. That's deeper than just three little propositional truths about the gospel. We have to have this. So I ask you, Christian soldier. Do you understand the gospel? And this does not mean, can I give a testimony and get someone to pray with me? This means you know your own existence. Again, I'm not trying to be mean, but that can mean a lot of things. I'm asking, do you understand the gospel? Is the gospel at the very center of your life? Is the gospel the basis of your marriage? And now some of you thinking, preacher, you've gone from preaching to meddling, Right? Is the gospel at the center of your church? Your understanding of the of ecclesi- your understanding of the church is if it's not in with the gospel, then you don't understand the church. You understand how important this is. Is the gospel what you base your understanding of the church? Do you have a pervasive worldview with the gospel in it? In other words, folks, the gospel is just not some religious truth. It is total truth. Total truth over life. Do you, think, do you thank God for the gospel? Do you stand in the gospel? Listen to Romans 5 and we're done. Maybe we'll get a couple of shouts of how good God is to us. Right? Just listen to this. For while we were still weak. You hear it? That's one description of you without Christ. You ready? While we were re- weak at the right time. I'd call that divine sovereignty. Right? Christ died for the ungodly. It's not looking good for us right now. Weak, ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. You see it? Weak, ungodly sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God. Does it get any better for us? Wrath against us. Enemies of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The verses reveal to us that we were weak, unrighteous, sinful, unjust, and unsaved enemies of God. Yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And note verses 9 and 10. That's the gospel of peace right there. Man was at war with God, but Christ made peace. Hear this. Again, listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Man warred against God. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. There's no middle ground. There's no punching the stick shift in neutral. 
You're either for me or you're against me. Fallen man was an enemy of God, yet Christ makes peace a reality for those he saves. That's good news. We are at peace with God. We aren't on opposite sides anymore. Listen to how important this is in the war. Y'all listening? We now stand with him. This means a Christian can stand firm and say to the enemy, You can come against me, but I have shoes that anchor me to the ground that God has given me. And if, if I had to fight in my own power, I would lose ground all the time. I would fail. The gospel has given us peace with God in which we stand. The Bible says it like this. If God be for us, who can be against us? God is on my side. He fights for me. The good news is that I am not an enemy of God anymore. Are y'all listening? That's the good news of this text. The gospel of peace helps you know that we're not God's enemy. We fight with him based on his victory. And I can be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And that is the confidence that you have when your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now today, if you're lost, hear the word of Scripture. Ungodly, weakness, enemies, unrighteous, wrath of God against you. The only one that can change that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's the only one that can give you peace. He's the only one that can save your soul. There's a reason why Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through me. Hear it again. You must be saved. And with that command comes the power to do it from our God. With the very command comes the power for God to do it. He can do it. He's the only one. And if he issues that command, he will do it. Why? Because our God reigns. Let's pray. Great God, we just bow before you and thank you for the gospel of peace. Lord, help me, help all of us to have ourselves prepared. And I believe most importantly from this text, with firm footing. Not simple pleasantries, not simple nutshell presentations of a testimony, but the gospel of peace. Lord, help us. We should never move away from it. Help us to learn. Help us to study. Help us, Lord God, to be saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that which has given us peace with you, made us right with you. It's, on the, it's the basis of the gospel. It's in the basis of the gospel that you've adopted us. Lord, made us your children. Help us to live in light of gospel peace. And ultimately, Lord God, we thank you that we have, we have peace with you. If you are for us, who can be against us? We exalt you for that peace that we have. Lord, for someone under the sound of my voice that has an illusionary peace that's transient, that's like a vapor. Maybe a, a, a happiness in things. Lord, may you help them see that those things are, will, will go away. And Lord, the only real lasting happiness is ultimate satisfaction in you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. God, help us see that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now. Have you responded with a whole-souled commitment in Christ alone to save your soul? Have you? That's what's important uh, when it comes to an invitation. Peter gave an invitation in Acts 2, and they were cut to the heart. Some were cut to respond with gnashing of teeth. Some were cut by the Holy Spirit of God, quickening, regenerating work of the Spirit of God to make them alive unto the gospel. What is God doing right now in this place? Would you surrender to that call of God upon your life? You must be saved. One more verse. Let's sing. Pastor, i got to say this. My heart's going to pop if I don't. You heard this before from me. Maybe you haven't if you've not been here. But In fourth grade, a friend of mine came down the, the hallway, and I saw a look on his face like I'd never seen before. And he said, David, I got saved. That was the beginning of my understanding. And from there, God grew that seed and saved me. Maybe you need to know that today to be saved. Maybe you need to be the one to say, I've got saved. Let's sing together. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have Let's sing the last verse. Uh, one thing Dr. MacArthur hammered us preachers on before we left. He preached an hour and 30 minutes basically on the fact that Christ is coming again. Don't we forget that? Aren't you looking forward? The Bible tells us that actual creation groans for the return of Christ. He's going to put it back in order. How much more should the people of God long for his coming? Amen. Let's sing this verse with vigor. Last verse of Amazing Grace. Let's sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we know less days to sing God's praise than when we first made. 
We certainly want you to come back tonight. We're going to be rolling out the proposed um, uh, revision of the bylaws that include elder-led church, okay? And uh, if you have a copy of that, please bring that back with you so we don't have to print another hundred of them, okay? Bring that with you. We'll have some extras, but if you have one, please bring it with you tonight. We'll see you tonight, okay?